Hello, friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigSceneDispatch.com. Before we take you to your favorite Sports History Network show, just want to tell you a little bit about some merch that you can pick up that represents your favorite SHN podcast. So far, there's t-shirts, coffee mugs, and even books from some of the authors that do podcasts right here on SHN. Who could buy something better than that than have the history right from the, the gentleman that you hear talking about it? But we also are adding things each and every day. And where's that store, may you ask? Well, it's at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. Up at the top, there is the SHN. HN merch button. Click on that. It'll take you right to the store and you can be representing your favorite podcast and show the world that, hey, on the swag that I'm using, it's the headquarters of sports yesteryear, Sports History Network, and my favorite podcaster, the Sports History Network store. Shop there today. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Once in a while, there is a regular season game in which so much is riding on. In this instance, it was the last game of the 1969-1970 NHL season in which the New York Rangers needed to score a certain amount of goals and hope later that evening the Montreal Canadiens would be limited to a certain number of goals and lose the game in order for the Rangers to sneak past Montreal and qualify for the Stanley Cup playoffs. For the Rangers, guys like Arnie Brown, Dave Ballon, and Orlin Kurtenbach were the stars. And just like the opening tease of Sports Forgotten Heroes says, even if it was just for one game. Well, on today's episode of Sports Forgotten Heroes, we're going to talk about this one particular game and three of the stars who played vital roles in the win for the Rangers, Arnie Brown, Dave Ballon, and Orland Curtin. This is Sports Forgotten Heroes, a tribute to the stars who shape the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan. Hello and welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes, episode 99, Nine Goals. A pretty unique name for this podcast. Actually, it's based on a book of the same name. Nine Goals, written by one of my guests today, Reg Lansbury. Here's the deal. So, I don't think it's a secret that my favorite hockey team is the New York Rangers. A few of my podcasts here have been about hockey stars from the Rangers whom I think are forgotten heroes. One thing I have tried to do over the last few years is make Sports Forgotten Heroes season relevant. And by that I mean focus on the sports that are currently in season. So during these winter months, I try to focus on winter sports. There are several hockey players and basketball players whom I would like to feature on this podcast. And while my list is long, finding knowledgeable people to talk about some of these forgotten heroes is not long, especially when some of the stars whom I'd like to focus on have long since passed. 
But there are a few out there who are still around and despite my best efforts, have been unable to either find them or get them to commit to appearing. Guys like Bob Pettit from the NBA's St. Louis Hawks and Dennis Hole, the brother of Bobby and uncle of Brett. These guys were great. I would love to get them on. Unfortunately for now, I have been unable to do so. So, I reach out to the people who I know enjoy talking about the stars of the past and can bring something extra to the podcast. Sometimes it's just snippets about the stars. So, on this episode of Sports Forgotten Heroes, I'm taking a slightly different angle by talking about a very interesting, unique game from the 1969-1970 NHL season. The last day of the regular season. The New York Rangers needed to score as many goals as possible in order to qualify for the Stanley Cup playoffs. And they had to win that game and then hope the Montreal Canadiens will be limited to less than five goals in their game that evening against the Chicago Blackhawks and lose. We're going to talk about the unique circumstances about that game and along the way talk a little about some of the forgotten stars of that game with my two guests, Reg Lansbury, who wrote a terrific book about that game called nine goals, and I also welcome back to the podcast Rangers historian George Grimm, who also adds commentary about the forgotten heroes I have chosen to discuss, mainly Arnie Brown, Dave Ballon, Orlin Kurtenbach, Pete Stemkowski, who played for the Rangers opponent that night, the Detroit Red Wings, Walt Kachuk, and the coach of the Rangers at that time, Emil Francis. Now, with the exception of Francis, dedicating an entire episode to any of these guys might be a little difficult, but talking about each for a few minutes certainly is enlightening. I hope you enjoy this format. And by the way, I'll be using the same format for a podcast on the NBA where I will use the triple overtime NBA Finals game between the Boston Celtics, and Phoenix Suns as a device to talk about guys like JoJo White, Alvin Adams, Ricky Sobers, and a few other forgotten stars of the NBA. But for now, hockey, and the guys I mentioned just a moment ago. But first, remember, let your fellow sports fans know about Sports Forgotten Heroes. Please spread the word. Subscribe. Let everyone know about the podcast and the forgotten stars of yesteryear me and my guests talk about. Follow Sports Forgotten Heroes on Twitter at SportsFHeroes. Look for Sports Forgotten Heroes on Instagram or the Sports Forgotten Heroes page on Facebook and give it a like. You can always find out more about every forgotten star I talk about at SportsFH.com. There, I have links to more stories about the heroes, stats, an area where you can submit questions and suggest other stars you'd like to know more about. Again, that's sportsfh.com. 
And as always, if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please give Sports Forgotten Heroes a five-star rating. Also, as always, thanks for listening. Okay, I've got a lot to cover on today's podcast, so let's get to it with my guests, Reg Lansbury and George Grimm. Reg, George, welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes. So kind of you to join. George, you're basically a regular now. Reg, first time you've been on. Gentlemen, welcome to Thanks the podcast. For me. Yep, absolutely. Yes, sir. Thanks for having me on. So let's start with you, Reg, uh, since uh, this is your first time here on Sports Forgotten Heroes. Why don't you tell us a little bit about um, your inspiration for writing the book, Nine Goals. Why write about this one particular game? Well, more and there are probably three related reasons. First, I've been a lifelong Ranger fan. This will be my 58th year. The second and most compelling reason is that I was there that day. And it remains the most amazing athletic event I've ever seen. And the third reason is I've spent my career in sports journalism. I've been writing about sports and been published for a little over 46 years. What kind of sports do you normally cover, Reg, and what have you covered in the past? Well, I started out in men's professional tennis in New York in 1977. And so obviously being paid to write and watch tennis was an amazing thing. But I had the best of both worlds because at night, twice a week back then, as George knows, on Wednesdays and Sundays, I would go and see the Rangers. So working working at Times Square during the day and walking down a dozen blocks to the garden was was pretty good duty. Absolutely. So and and George, um, welcome back to the uh, podcast. As I've said, you've been on a couple of times, mm-hmm. and um, as most of those who listen to Sports Forgotten Heroes know, George is a Rangers historian. So. We're going to count on your expertise as well, especially when we turn our attention to Emil Francis and some of the other forgotten heroes from the Rangers that we're going to discuss today. You got it. But what we're going to do is explore this forgotten game as well, the circumstances around it. And like I said, some of the... uh, forgotten stars who played in it. So let's first discuss the circumstances surrounding this game. Reg, if you can, tell us a little bit about the season the Rangers were having and what happened that led to them being painted into this corner where they needed to score you know, an incredible amount of goals in one game for the hopes of making it into the playoffs. Right. Well, as concisely as I can make it, the Rangers led the entire NHL right into February. And on Friday the 13th of all days, Jim Nielsen sustained a knee injury in Oakland. In a game that the Rangers led 2-1 to one in the third period, they fell apart. They gave up three goals and lost 4-2. to two. And all of a sudden, everything changed after that. Six days later, Brad Park uh, injured an ankle. He had a hairline fracture. He was checked by Carl Brewer, 
along the boards at the Olympia in Detroit. And Brad Skateblade got caught between the ice surface and the boards themselves. And it's kind of gruesome if you have a mental picture of that. And that started the Rangers' tailspin. They had an amazing amount of injuries. They went from first in the league until fifth place the final day of the season. Incredible. You know, the Rangers have always been this jinxed franchise with these crazy injuries, and that's just another one in their in their long history. So they go into this swoon, and they need to win this game and score, like I said before, an incredible amount of goals to make the playoffs. They lost right. to they their opponent. They score at least five. Yeah, and, and, and hope for something else to happen, too. They lost to their yes, opponent, sir. the uh, Detroit Red Wings, the previous game. So not only do they need to score at least five goals, they have to hope, I believe, that the Montreal Canadiens, who will play the Chicago Blackhawks later that evening, they have to hope that the Canadians will lose and are limited in how many goals they score. The Rangers, as Reg explained, were off to one of the greatest starts in franchise history before the roof caved in. Injuries really hurt the team. They were cruising. Brad Park, whom Francis was quoted as saying, Brad was the best defenseman who ever played for me. He was the key to everything. Well, he broke his ankle. It was February 28, 1970. The Red Wings and Rangers wound up in a 3-3 tie at the famed Olympia Stadium in Detroit. This was the 60th game of a 76-game season, and Park was smoking, as were the Rangers. He had 11 goals and 26 assists. He finished the season as a first-team All-Star, was fifth in Hart Trophy voting, and second in Norris Trophy voting. No telling what could have been had he played those final 16 games. Without a doubt, one of the greatest defensemen to ever lace on a pair of skates for the Rangers. But now he was lost. And it was only the beginning of a string of injuries that derailed the Rangers. They were 34, 13, and 13 up to this point with a total of 81 points and were in first place with 16 games to go. However, with the injuries, they ended the season by going 4-9-3 and three over those final 16 games and fell from first to fourth, finishing seven points behind the first place Chicago Blackhawks. It was a bitter end to a season that had started with so much promise, only to squeak into the playoffs on the final day of the season. So, if one of you, Reg or George, can set the stage for us, what were the rules back then that created such a situation? Well, Warren, it was pretty straightforward. There were three main tiebreakers to qualify for the playoffs if you ended up tied in points. The first tiebreaker was most victories for the season. The second tiebreaker was the most goals scored for the entire season. And the third tiebreaker was the fewest goals allowed. And so right away, the Rangers had a predicament. As you said, they had to win 
against Detroit, who they'd lost to 18 hours earlier in Detroit, 6-2. They had to score at least five goals. So if the Rangers won Sunday afternoon but didn't score at least five, they were out of the playoffs. And then third, as you said, Montreal not only had to lose in Chicago, they they had to score fewer than five goals themselves. <laughs> How does that differ? And for the, only, yeah, for the only time in New York Rangers history, it's, to this day it remains true, they scored nine goals in the final game of the regular season. Wow. So how do the rules differ today than they did back then, or do they? Pardon? I didn't, I didn't come through. Um, how do the rules differ today than they did back then, or are the rules the same as far as this, you know, having to score X number of goals in order to make the playoffs? Yeah. Well, the NHL Board of Governors met during the summer of 1970, and they addressed it right away. And just before the season began in October of 1970, they changed the qualifying criteria. If two teams finished with identical records, goal differential for the season would be the first tiebreaker. And so you can think mathematically how unlikely it would be that two teams would finish in with identical records and have an identical goal differential. Right, sure. And then the, the second tiebreaker, they took goals for and goals against out of it. The second tiebreaker was their head-to-head series during the year. So, and then, you know, obviously you get into this crazy year we're in this year, something like that is very, very unlikely to happen. That's right. So let's talk about the game itself. Um, It was at Madison Square Garden. And one of the things that struck me in your book, Nine Goals, Reg, was how very few fans turned out. My recollection growing up, watching hockey, being a Rangers fan, one of the most difficult tickets to get. Um, It's just people love to go to the garden and watch hockey and watch the Rangers play. So there were very few fans in that game, at least at the start. Why were there so few fans there? And, you know, is maybe like, I don't know, 20% of capacity, if that. And then as the game went on, more and more fans showed up. Talk about that. That's right. Well, I think there are a couple of reasons. The obvious one, Warren, was that a lot of Ranger fans just didn't believe they could pull it off. And the second reason was that game was televised on CBS as the game of the week. So if you didn't want to make the trip into the garden, you could stay home and watch it. That would take a lot of incentive away right there. So people are watching the game or are learning about what's going on and they start showing up? Yeah, the Rangers amazingly scored four of the five goals they needed in the first period. They left the first period with a 4-1 lead. And then all of a sudden, people started getting on the subway and heading to the garden. (laughs) Because you could tell something special was happening. And of course, some of them were probably in bars around the garden. They came in, but they probably wanted to see what would happen. Mm -hmm. So by the end of the game, how many people were there? It was full. 
That's just a crazy thing. After the second, after the first period, the building was a little over half full, and then before the third period, when the Rangers led seven to two, the building was full. What did the players think about that? You know that they get out there, there's hardly anybody there, and then as the game is going on, you know, going along, they're seeing more and more fannies in the seats. It must have been quite the sight. Yeah, I mean. I think I quoted Larry Brooks of the New York Post in the book, but he said that it just seemed almost as if it, the whole game was going to be a crapshoot. The Rangers had to have a perfect confluence of circumstances. So they literally did have nothing to lose. They played offense from the right from the drop of the puck. And defense didn't matter, correct? That's right. I mean, as I said, the third tiebreaker was fewest goals allowed for the season. And the Rangers had a 12-goal lead in Montreal. So no matter what happened, that was the tiebreaker they could rely on. Sure. Well, as it turns out... As George will remember, you know, I think any Ranger fan was thinking, especially after the Rangers won, now you had to wait for Montreal-Chicago that night. And, of course, George, as you know, being a long-suffering Ranger fan along with me, all it would have taken was a fluke goal for Montreal in the last few right. minutes to get a tie, and the whole thing was ruined. Yeah. yeah. Now, at that time, too, we probably all had our little uh, transistor radios held up just in, in the certain spot that you could get the game from Chicago, you know? Because you know, we didn't mm-hmm. have cable. We didn't have anything we have now. We had no, no uh, 24-hour sports news, so... You had to do the best you could. You know, some people got in cars and drove to a certain spot. And uh, the Rangers, uh, Reg probably has this in his book, but the Rangers were all over the place. Some of them were in bars trying to get the game. Uh, Jerry Eskenazi had a had a phone near this, this huge radio in the Times building, and he was feeding scores to, uh, to uh, Bill Jennings. And... Um, it was it was crazy. Yeah. How and Warren? Yeah. George George knows this, but as one, I'm one of the world's greatest optimists, so I never had any doubt that the Rangers would make it. But I think George can speak to what made Emil Francis so special as a leader that he was able to convince his players they could do it. Yeah, we're gonna. Oh get, yeah. Uh, yeah. Go ahead. He actually went around the room. And he, and he asked all the players, do you think you can do it? Do you think we can do it? Do you think we can do it? And all the players said yes. And, you know, and then they started to, uh, to almost uh, bet each other how many goals they would score. Uh, you know, John Rattel said, put me down for three. You know, Bear said, put me down for X, X amount of goals. And, um, and that's, that's how they did it. And it was a, it was a crazy game because uh, Amel kept, kept uh, pulling out uh, Eddie Jockerman to, to get the sixth man on the ice. And um, there was a rumor, too, that the Red Wings, that the afternoon before, the night before, when they won their game and they made the playoffs, that they had a party. Now, I interviewed uh, Bruce McGregor for my book because he was on the Red Wings at the time. And he didn't uh, admit to seeing any kind of partying, but... Um, their goaltender, uh, Reg, was that Roy Edwards? I think it was. Yes, Ro- it was. What was? Was their goaltender? Th- oh, for that game, but the game that 
the nine goal game, wasn't that Roger Crozier? That was that was Roger Crozier, but he he was playing because supposedly uh, Roy Edwards was laying on the uh, the training table in the locker room because he had a hangover. <laughs> so uh, so you know. No, I have to say, I asked uh, Gary Unger about that. And he said the truth was that Roy always suffered from these terrible migraine headaches and that he really was not hungover, that he had such a migraine that he, he really was not up to it. So just to reset, the Rangers needed to pour it on against Detroit. They needed to score as many goals as possible. They had the lead in goals against between themselves and the Canadians. The NHL tiebreaker, should the Rangers of Montreal have identical records, would come down to which team scored the most goals. So, going into the game, here's where both teams stood. The Canadians had a record of 38 wins, 21 losses, and 16 ties for 92 points. They had scored 242 goals and had given up 191. So they had a two point lead over the Rangers, who had one less win, 37, and one more loss, 22, for 90 points. Both teams had 16 ties. Now the Rangers were five goals behind with 237, and they had given up 184 goals which were seven less than Montreal. I know that's a lot of numbers. So the Rangers not only needed to win, but Montreal had to lose, and the Rangers needed to fill the net with pucks, a lot of them, and hope the Blackhawks would beat Montreal and keep the Canadians out of the net. Amazingly, everything that needed to happen for the Rangers did. Well, you know, the Rangers did get on the scoreboard rather quickly when Rajal Bear put one by Crozier. Um, the assists went to Jean Rattel and Arnie Brown. And this actually came just 30 seconds into the game after a line change. Why such an early line change? Well, as George can say, Emil was always conscious of matchups, and I think that's one thing that made him such an amazing coach. You remember, Warren, there were no such thing as really as computers or assistant coaches back then. Emil carried his computer in his head, and he knew every player in the NHL and in pro hockey cold. Hmm. He knew exactly who he wanted on the ice at all times. He was certainly a coach, I think, that was ahead of his time, and we're going to talk about him in just a bit, a little more in depth. But I want to go back to this goal you know, for Jobert, it was really a huge goal as he'd struggled down the stretch to score. But the guy I'm most interested in here is Arnie Brown. That season, he actually set the Rangers record for most goals by a defenseman with 15. So who uh-huh. was who was Arnie Brown? Tell us a little bit about him if you can. George, go ahead. Well, uh, well, Arnie Brown came to the Rangers from the uh, Toronto Maple Leafs in the uh, Andy Bathgate trade. And um, he was one of the players at the time who helped to turn the Rangers around. Not 
not by his play, but he gave he brought uh, youth into the Rangers, and he um, he was a hard hitting defenseman, and uh, he played on the Harry Howes wing for a while, and um, then when Brad Park came up, after a while, uh, Arnie was teamed with Brad Park, and Park was giving him good passes to shoot from the point with, and uh, that's how Arnie got more points because, you know, previous to that, he was a, you know, stayed home defenseman. He didn't get a lot of, a lot of points, but when Brad started feeding him the puck, he, 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 he would take off with it and, and, uh, shoot and score. And that's how he, uh, led the, uh, the Rangers that year as far as a defenseman, but he was, he was a pretty good player. He, he, he was, um, um, he was our, uh, Arnie Orr, we used to call him. Uh, up in uh, up in the blue seats, on the oar, and uh, he was uh, he was pretty tough. He would fight if he had to. He wouldn't go looking for fights, but he could always, you know, defend his his uh, teammates. Mm-hmm. He played. For, Warren, yeah, go ahead, Reg. I was going to say for your listeners, Arnie grew up in Apsley, Ontario, married a girl from Connecticut, but he attended the famous Saint Mark School, which was a famous hockey program overseen by the legendary Father Bauer. They sent over 150 players to the NHL, including two massive hockey Hall of Famers, Red Kelly and Frank Pahovlich. Wow. But, but Arnie, Arnie's background was first rate. He had the talent to go with it, and he had great coaching and a great support system. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Ironically... And of course, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, Reg. I'm, I'm just going to say the 9-5 to five game, as I mentioned, Arnie set a career record that day. He had four assists in that game. That's right. Yeah, it was just this crazy season for him. As, as you had mentioned, George, you know, Brad Park really opened it up for him. And right. he scored 15 goals. He had 21 assists for for the season, four of which came in that game. Why that game? What was it that that opened up the game for Arnie? I mean, this is just this 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 crazy, abstract, weird game where the Rangers go out and they score these five goals, uh, these nine goals, and you would think that it's all going to be from, you know, the forwards, and here a key defenseman, you know, is is you know, the key ingredient to four of these goals. Well, you know, it was a wide open game and the Rangers had the Red Wings on their heels and he just kept coming and coming. And, uh, Arnie was part of that. Arnie, Arnie would skate the puck up ice. And, uh, you know, when the Red Wings would actually shoot it down at the Ranger end, which wasn't too often, but he would, he would bring the puck up and make things happen from there. So uh, it was it was just a wide open game, and the Rangers were were controlling it from start to finish. And Warren, you know, in addition to the nine goals, which they've never scored in the final day of the regular season before or since, the Rangers, of course, had sixty five shots on goal that day, which was a team record and remains a team record. Crazy. You know, the other cool thing about this is after a slow start the following season, the Rangers sent Arnie Packing to, of all places, Detroit. He really bounced around yeah. afterwards, you know, um, even ending up in the WHA. How would you characterize mm-hmm. his overall career? 
Well, Arnie once once told me that he he was pretty pissed that Amo when he got traded, and he thought that the the fact that Amo that uh, Arnie was uh, piling up the points and the goals. Uh, it wasn't what Amo wanted. He wanted a stay-at-home defenseman. He didn't want all his uh, defensemen, you know, uh, moving up ice. He wanted someone to to stay back in his zone, and uh, that was why uh, uh, Arnie got traded. That's what Arnie thought anyway. And uh, you know, so Arnie wasn't happy with the trade. He said Amo called him on a Sunday afternoon. He told me he had to be in the in in the Detroit on Monday, and. Um, that's the way it was back then, and uh, right. and uh, and Arnie actually that year he got traded. The Rangers won the Vezina Trophy. Uh, uh, Eddie Jockman and Gilles Schillinger won the Vezina Trophy, and the last game of the season was against the Red Wings at Madison Square Garden. And once it was, um, I think the, the the Rangers won. Eddie didn't give up a lot of goals. And so it was pretty sure that they were going to win the Vezina Trophy. And Arnie skated down the length of the ice from his net, you know, where the uh, where players usually get you know, together and, you know, shake hands and stuff. And he came down from his end of the ice, and he, he got into the Ranger uh, huddle. Uh, he he, he uh, put his arms around Eddie, and he, uh, he uh, congratulated all his former teammates for winning the uh, Vezina Trophy, and I thought that was just the classiest thing any hockey player I've ever seen do. It, that was just fantastic. That's 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 one thing that I will always remember about Andy Brown. Very that and the fact that he he uh, climbed over the the uh, glass with Vic Hasfield to uh, <laughs> rescue Emil Francis from fans years before that. <laughs> also, also in the game against Detroit, if you can believe it. Arnie Brown appeared in two games with the Toronto Maple Leafs during the 1961-62 season, and then another four during the 62-63 season. He couldn't crack the roster, and midway through the 63-64 season, the Leafs engineered a pretty big trade with the Rangers in which they sent Brown to Broadway along with Bob Nevin, Dick Duff, Rod Sealing, and Bill Collins for Ranger legend Andy Bathgate and Don McKenney. The trade paid immediate dividends for the Leafs as they struggled throughout the season but wound up finishing third and making it to the playoffs where they went on a run to win the Stanley Cup. For the Rangers, it was another step in building a foundation that would ultimately help them escape from the cellar and become a contending team. Arnie finally made his debut with the Rangers in the 64-65 season, playing 58 games. He became a fixture in their lineup the following season and finished 10th in Norris Trophy voting. He was a key cog in the Rangers' rise. Born in Oshawa, Ontario, Arnie started playing hockey when he was five, and by the time he was 14, he was playing in an adult league. A Maple Leaf scout saw Arnie when he was 15 and was so impressed, he signed him in a parking lot after a game. Overall, Arnie played in the NHL for 12 years and spent one year in the WHA. 
following his playing days, he spent a year on the bench in Vancouver as an assistant coach, but gave that up to return home. He passed away at the age of 77 on July 26, 2019. The Rangers take this 3-1 lead at 12-31 of the first period on a power play goal by Dave Ballin. Walkachuk and Arnie Brown had the assist on that goal. Here we are. We're just 12-31 in the game. It's already Brown's third assist. I mean, this is crazy. But the goal was scored by Dave Ballin. Who is Dave Ballin? Dave Ballin was bow-legged, but he was a very good player. Um, he was with the Rangers early in his, his career. He ended up going to Montreal in the Jacques-Claude the trade, came back to the Rangers a few years later. Uh, when he was in Montreal, he won two Stanley Cups with them. And then he came, he, then he was, um, I think he was selected by Minnesota in, Minnesota in the expansion draft, came to the Rangers, and he, um, he got comfortable on the left wing of Walker Chook and, uh, and uh, Bill Fairburn on the Rangers' first uh, 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 line back then, the Bulldog line. It was a it was a great season for him. I mean, this was the best offensive year of his career. He actually scored thirty three goals and had thirty seven assists. The following year, he had thirty six goals, but that would be his last full season with the team. Why did the Rangers send him packing to Vancouver? Well, he had, uh, you know, uh, through that through that training camp and early in the season, he was having weakness weakness in his arms and legs, and they so they sent him away. But it turned out that that might have been the um, the beginning of the MS that he later mm-hmm. suffered from mm-hmm. later on in his life, and he died uh, very early at uh, I think sixty eight. Mm-hmm. Yeah how how did how did this affect his career and and his 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 post NHL life. I mean, here, you know, he played for several teams during his career. He played for the Rangers twice, the Canadians, the North Stars. That's the Minnesota North Stars for um, our folks that don't remember. Uh, the Vancouver Canucks and the Quebec Nordiques when they were in the WHA. You know, so after his days with the Rangers, his offensive output really tailed off and it wound up he had MS. Can you talk yeah. about, you know, how it was diagnosed and, um, you know, what happened? No, I really don't know about that. Great, Mike. Well, Warren, yeah, Warren, I can tell you, I, I mean, I, his roommate on the road was Walter Kachuk. And Walter told me the last couple of years that they roomed together, Davey would get these hot clashes, which they didn't know for sure, of course, was linked to MS. But when they'd be on the road in the middle of the winter, Davy would open the hotel room window in frigid temperatures because he was he was literally hot. Hmm. And and Warren, I'm sorry, Walter Kachuk, you know, would be literally huddled under every blanket he could find. Hmm. And so unfortunately they really began to know that something was wrong. And George will remember that uh a week, a week ago tomorrow, January 15th, 1968, Bill Masterton and the North Stars became the first and only fatality in the modern era. He died of a severe brain injury in a game and, versus Oakland. Right. And as George will remember well, 
it took several years for helmets to become accepted in the NHL. But I mean, I have a clear image, as I know George does. Dave would stay in his lane, go down the left wing, and he would yeah. get pounded into the glass without a helmet repeatedly. Right. Mm. right. And that had to have some effect. Interesting, interesting observation. What kind of player was he, though? Tell us a little bit more about his game. He was an up and down the wing player. He was, he was a very, very, uh, very steady player. He was. Uh, you could count on him. He, he, um, he, he played well on that line with uh, Kachuk and Fairburn. Mm-hmm. Oh wow! Mm-hmm. Yeah, his nickname Billy and Walter gave him the nickname the Finisher. They would do the work behind the net and in the corners. And Dave would be in the slot waiting for the puck or around the crease to put a rebound in. He was he was he had a very quick stick, as they say. So as we just discussed, Dave was afflicted by MS. Now there's no proof that the constant beating he took in the corners led to MS as Reg suggested. But it is certainly an interesting hypothesis. Dave was five foot ten and weighed one hundred eighty pounds. He had a cup of coffee with the Rangers during the fifty nine sixty season and played very sparingly during the following two years before establishing himself as a regular for the sixty two sixty three season when he scored eleven goals and added thirteen assists. But it was the 63-64 season when he finally broke through by scoring 24 goals after being traded to Montreal in a multiplayer deal that saw Gump Worsley head north and Jacques Plant head to New York. Over the next couple of seasons, injuries slowed Dave down and he bounced around a little, moving from Montreal to Minnesota before finding his way back to Broadway and the Rangers in time for the 68-69 season. The following year, 69-70, the year that we've been discussing, is when he became a force, scoring 33 goals and adding 37 assists for a career-high 70 points. In the 70-71 season, he scored a career-high 36 goals. After that 36-goal season, as we discussed, Dave sort of disappeared. The Rangers traded him to Vancouver, where he spent parts of two seasons, but he was starting to feel the effects of MS. He tried to hook on with the Quebec Nordiques of the WHA as well, but with the multiple sclerosis playing a bigger role in his age 35 It was just too much, and Dave retired. Sadly, the MS became more prevalent, and Dave passed away at the age of 68 on May 29, 2007. For his career, he scored 192 goals and added 222 assists for a total of 414 points. The highlight of his career had to be the two Stanley Cups he won while with the Canadians, including the Cup in 1966, where he scored two goals and added three assists. Well, there was another guy on that team who uh, contributed to the nine-goal onslaught, and that was Orland Kurtenbach. Tell us about Orland. What kind of game did he have, and who would you compare him to today? Um, 
he was a he was a very big player for his time, and uh, he was counted on to protect his teammates. But he didn't want to be called an enforcer. Uh, he didn't like that name at all. So he he would rather be uh, thought of for his uh, skills. He came up with the Rangers first. He ended up in uh, Boston, and then Toronto, and then the Rangers got him back from uh, Toronto, and he. Uh, he played a few more years with the Rangers before going to Vancouver. Mm-hmm. But he he was a he was pretty he was a pretty tough player, and he had an allergy to the uh, the uh, gloves that they had to wear. So when he would fight somebody, he his um, um, you know at the time he would wear white gloves underneath his uh, you know regular hockey gloves. So you'd see these white fists moving around just just fast because. You know, they always claimed he had the fastest fist in hockey. And uh, you see these white gloves going going off off the other guy's face. And it was, it was you know, he was pretty tough. He was a very tough player. Interesting. He, he yeah, had... His career actually ended a year or two early, Warren, mm-hmm. because Orland contracted one of the worst skin allergies from those hockey gloves I've ever heard about. I mean, it was it was literally to the point where he could peel a layer of skin off. Oh, didn't Carol Vadney have something similar? Grandpa, I believe so. You know, Orland did have a, a, a somewhat of a long career, and it wasn't until his 10th season, which was the year after we're talking about, the 70-71 season, that his offense really blossomed when he scored 21 goals for Vancouver. Again, the Rangers traded him away. Why uh-huh. the sudden offense? And did the Rangers not take advantage of Orland's offensive capabilities, especially when they had suffered so many injuries during the 69-70 season? I think Orland Orland had back problems that year, too. So he was in and out of the lineup. And uh, that was, uh, and um, he had to have a spinal fusion surgery that summer, and um, he he came back very slowly, and uh, he was he was down in the minors for a while, and they called him up, and um, the uh, expansion draft was the next year, and and uh, and Lawrence knew that the Rangers weren't going to keep him, so he asked Emil to make sure he he went to Vancouver because that was his his home, and. Um, that's what Emil did. Yeah, he was the first captain of the Vancouver expansion team. Orland Kurtenbach played in the NHL for 13 years, five of which was on Broadway with the Rangers, where he scored a total of 30 goals and added 61 assists. His best offensive years, however, came with the Vancouver Canucks, with whom he played four seasons. With Vancouver, he scored 62 goals, including a career-high 24 in the 1971-72 season. Orland was left unprotected by the Rangers after the 1970 season, and that's when Vancouver claimed him. He was named the first captain of the Canucks and also recorded the first hat-trick in team history when he burned the California Golden Seals for three goals on December 12, 1970 in a 5-2 win. It was the only hat-trick of Orland's career. 
At the age of 37, and after four years with Vancouver, he retired from playing the game. Overall, he scored 119 goals to go along with 213 assists for a total of 332 points. A bruiser, he also recorded 613 minutes in penalties. Three years after he retired, Orland was named the coach of the Canucks, replacing Phil Maloney during the 1976-77 season. The Canucks were not a very good team, but Orland did pretty well that first year going 16-19-10. However, the wheels came off the following year with Vancouver going a dismal 20-43-17. He was dismissed as coach afterwards. Brad, earlier you you mentioned Pete Stemkowski, and he actually spent most of his 15-year career with the Rangers, seven in total. He scored in this game as well. It was his 25th goal of the season. Remind us about the type of player that Pete was and eventually how much New York fans became to liking him. George, why don't you take that one? Well, Pete was a was he was pretty big for his time at six foot one, one eighty five, and he was uh, he would just you know barrel into people. And uh, but he 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 had skills. He was a very good sportsman. He played on the line with Teddy Irvin and uh, Bruce McGregor, and um, he he was the uh, Polish prince. The, he was always keeping everyone laughing in the in the uh, locker room. He was always pulling uh, jokes on people. And um, he actually won a cup with the uh, Maple Leafs in 1967. And um, he scored the, uh, the goal to win the game in the third overtime, three overtimes, uh, against the uh, Chicago Blackhawks in uh, 1967. Uh, uh, it was the 70-71 uh, Stanley Cup yeah. semifinals. Yeah. yeah, I was at that game. And uh, you didn't think it was on April 29th. It was on April 29, 1971. Right, right. Marv Abba told a funny story about that in his book. Because uh, he had he, he was doing a game on radio, and he had that little table at Center Ice over, the, over where the Rangers went in and out of the clubhouse. And, uh, you know, uh, in between periods, he was interviewing people, doing commercials and everything, so he didn't have a chance to go to the bathroom. So somebody got him a pail. And they put it under the table, and he, he did what he had to do just right then and there. So uh, uh, that's, that's awesome. Dedication. That's awesome. That's awesome. What was it about Pete's game that the Ranger fans took a liking to? Well, he was just a, uh, he, he, you know, he was he he didn't take anything from anybody. He didn't look for fights, but he. He would you know, barrel into people and uh, make his way into the the uh, opposition zone, and um, he was very good at getting the puck to his uh, wingers. And that, you know that was the range of checking line. They used to check. That's what they did. They, that was their job. And according according to Emil Francis Warren, Peter was the greatest player under pressure that ever played for him, which I think yeah. is quite a statement. That is quite a statement. Very he big said, statement. He said, that, he said that pressure never bothered Stemmer at all, and it's worth remembering 
Stemmer scored an overtime goal in the first game of that series in Chicago okay. Stadium. Okay. And then sadly, game seven, which the Rangers lost four to two, they led two to nothing on goals by Roger Van Peter Stankowski, and things were looking good, but it wasn't meant to be. Yeah, no, I mean, I would say that that semifinal series against the Blackhawks was most likely the highlight of of his career. His best year with, with the Rangers came a couple seasons later, 73-74, when he scored 25 goals and added 45 assists. But I do think mm-hmm. the highlight was that series against the Blackhawks. Right. As a Ranger, it was. No right. doubt. No but doubt. I think, I, think, I, think, I think George is right. Winning the Stanley Cup as a rookie in Toronto would probably be sure. one. Sure. Right. I mean, his his name is is engraved on the cup, or at least the band that was on the cup. You know, one of the other names you yeah. mentioned, I just wanted uh, to 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 just talk about him for a very brief moment. Teddy Irvine. Do I don't? He he's got a very famous son as well. That's right, uh, Chris Jericho. Yes, exactly. Chris Jericho oh. from uh, wrestling fame. Uh, actually spent uh, part of his youth watching his dad play at Madison Square Garden. Right, right. Uh, Teddy uh, actually uh, assisted on that Pete Stemkowski triple overtime goal, and he told me once that there's a famous picture of uh, Nostema putting the pass, the, the puck past uh, Tony Esposito, but in the lower corner you can see his number 27 skate there. And he was always very proud of that, that he made that picture. He was his, his, his you know, number 27 skate was, he was yeah. down in the <laughs> lower left hand corner. But he, he's, he was a, he was a tough player. I mean, he, the, the, he, uh, when the Rangers got him, he said Amon went to scout him and he was fighting two guys at the same time. And, um, he called them two. Two uh, sluggos. I don't remember who they were, but he was fighting these two sluggos at the same time. And uh, Amo liked what he saw. He, he he got him. I think uh, Reg did. Uh, did he trade uh, Gene Carr for him? Or no, he, he traded Uhabiding and yes. the yeah. who Rangers had gotten from L.A. Traded him right back with Uhabiding for Ted. Yeah. Oh, now we know where Chris Jericho gets his toughness from. Well, I'll tell you this, Warren. I was kibitzing with Ted before I was hanging up, and I just asked him just to be jokey. Did he ever wrestle with Chris fooling around at home? And he said, oh, we used to wrestle all the time. But there was one day when Chris turned 13, Ted said, I realized I couldn't keep doing that with him anymore. (laughs) Oh, a former champion. I believe it. A former champion, yeah. Chris Jericho. Yeah. Hey, you know, another player who appeared in this particular game for the Rangers was an all-time favorite, and we've mentioned his name, Walt Kachuk. This season turned out to be the best of his 14-year career, and all 14 years he spent with the Rangers, I think that's a little unusual as well. He scored 27 goals and added 50 assists, but he was never able to replicate that. He definitely dealt with some injuries throughout his career. But here's a big question for you. Based off what he did on the, in that season, 27 goals and 50 assists in the 69-70 season, 
Would you consider his career a success, a disappointment? What kind of player was he, and why was he unable to do more? Well, you know, it depends on who you ask. When Abel Francis left and John Ferguson came in, one of the first things Fergie said was that uh, Walt was uh, was uh, overrated and overpaid. But uh, most Ranger fans loved him, um, and he 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 was very good for the Rangers for a long time. He had he had a five year run where he scored more than twenty goals each year. Um, he was. Uh, a big center. It was hard to knock off his feet. Um, when he first came up, his they, he wanted to be called Walt Tachuk. <laughs> and, then, and then a few years later, he became Walt Tachuk. So, uh, but that's okay. Yeah. Well, Warren, I would just, I would just tell you after 58 years, and I, I know for a fact that Emil agrees with me. There is no question. Walter is probably one of the top five most underrated players. Right that Emile's told me in the current era, and let's just say post-war, World War II, that he ever saw. Interesting. And the reason for that was that Walter, and as George knows well, Walter and Billy Fairburn, they did the dirty work that unless you're a student of hockey, you will never appreciate. Mm-hmm. No. Mm-hmm. Talk about that, how he All opened up the game. Is- yeah, talk about that, how he opened up the game for, for well, the rest of the team. You just have to look at, as you mentioned earlier, the amount of goals that Dave Ballon scored on his wing. And then after he left the Rangers, Walter and Billy essentially made Steve Vickers the rookie of the year in 72, 73. Mm -hmm. That's right. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And his former teammates are all united about how great Walter was. They said he was easily the best second line center in the NHL. I think George would agree with that. Walt Kachuk is one of the all-time fan favorites of the New York Rangers. He spent his entire 14-year career with the team, scoring 227 goals and adding 451 assists. He did what he had to do. Score, play defense, shut down the opposition. He was a fantastic center. Over the course of his career, he had 23 game-winning goals. He scored another 19 in the playoffs. But it was his work, his grinding, forechecking, frustrating the top center on the other teams for which Walt really built his reputation. Only once in his career did he end up on the south side of the plus-minus rating. His work against Phil Esposito in the 1972 Stanley Cup Finals was outstanding as he, along with his linemates, stopped Espo from scoring a single goal. Although the Rangers lost that series in six games, Walt's play was one of the team's bright spots. As we talked about, Kachuk's big year came during the 69-70 season when he scored a career-high 77 points. Six times he scored more than 20 goals in a season. He also helped the Rangers defeat the heavily favored New York Islanders in the 1979 playoffs. However, during the 80-81 season, Walt was struck in the eye by a puck and that ended his career. Which, as I said earlier, lasted 14 years, all with the New York Rangers. Let's talk about Emil for a second here. He came up as a goalie, played for the Blackhawks for two years, and then the Rangers for four. 
you didn't see a lot of action. I think he had one year with the Blackhawks where he might have seen uh, more action than any other goalie that the Blackhawks had that season. Tell us about his time between the pipes and what kind of goalie he was and um, why he was unable to break through to be the number one goalie. Well, he was very small, first of all. And uh, he had played baseball in the offseason, so his main game was uh, his glove hand. And he uh, actually invented the, uh, the trapper glove and the blocker glove for, for goaltenders. So... Um, and that came, and that came from his time as playing baseball. He was a shortstop, and you know, I I think it, the story is is that his uncle thought he'd make for a good goalie, and it was his experience as a shortstop that um, might have had the most impact on hockey uh, with those gloves. I mean, he got the idea for those gloves playing shortstop. Right, but uh, when he was in Chicago, his coach. Uh, was uh, was uh, Charlie Conacher, and Charlie at one point in the season, Charlie told him that as long as I'm I'm the coach, you know, you would be my goalie. So and you know you can send out your laundry. So two weeks later, he gets traded to the Rangers, and the owner of the team was a guy named Bill Tobin, who, who Emil didn't get along with at all. And he told him he got traded, and Emil said, "You can't trade me. I just sent my laundry out." And and you know, Bill Tobin said you can pick that up the next time you come through Chicago. <laughs> so, but but uh, Amo Amo was some Amo. You know, it's a shame that Amo is is not feeling well right now because he's got so many stories. I mean, Rage probably has heard many of the stories. I've heard many of the stories, but there's so many that we haven't heard. Or even if you heard him again, you don't mind because Amos still had that voice, that that uh, that uh, clip accent, and it was just a pleasure to listen to him talk. Just just wonderful, and and he, he was just just a, a great storyteller. He loved hockey. He loved to, he loved to talk about it, and uh, I really miss him. Mm-hmm. Where did the name the cat come from? Uh, there was a, a sports writer out in. Uh, most you are such Saskatchewan called uh, called the Scotty, and uh, the cat was playing for the most the most your uh, Canucks, and and uh, Scotty wrote that their new goalie is as quick as a cat, so that's how he became the cat. And it's and it's stuck. What was his yeah. style as a coach? Uh, Brad Park. Last week we uh, Reggie and I were on a Zoomcast, and Brad Park was there, and Park told us that. Um, uh, he was the most organized coach he ever played for. He had two or three uh, systems for doing everything, coming out of the corner, moving the puck up ice, so he could he could change in the middle of the period, and and it, you know they wouldn't uh, miss a beat. And he and he liked to control everything. Um, I think that's why he was uh, ended up being the GM and coach because he wanted to control everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Brad had told me, Warren, when he was a rookie, he came up in 68, 69. He served an apprenticeship in Buffalo and then came to the Rangers. But they would they would have practice face-offs. And then before Emil would drop the puck, he would ask each player what his job was. Now, you might think that's pretty simple. That the left wing knows he has to watch the right defenseman, for instance. 
but Amina would mix it up. He would, he might ask the centerman, what's the right wing's job? You had to know what each teammate, what their job was in addition to yours. Mm-hmm. And Brad said it made him think about the game a different way. Mm-hmm. What was I it? Think that's instruction. What was it that management saw in Emil that they said, you know, this guy would make a good coach? And how unusual was it, or was it unusual that he was coach and general manager? Not back then. No, that was that was fairly common back then, and. Uh, as far as becoming Ranger coach, he was basically in the right place at the right time. Um, he was uh, the Rangers uh, assistant general manager when uh, Mudge Patrick got fired. So, and back then the Rangers didn't do a lot of looking. They whoever was in the office, they moved them up, and uh, <laughs> it was Amos, and Amos was there, you know. And also, Warren Emil had had a winning pedigree. He coached the Guelph team. Mm. in Canada where he first had John Rattel and Roger Bear when they were age 15. Right. So he knew and about so he them knew, and to get them to get them up to the Rangers. Yes, sir. I mean, he knew the, the Rangers that were coming up through the pipeline of the old Guelph building was Harry Howell, Dean Prentice, Andy Baskett, as George well remembers. Right. You know, unfortunately, he never won a Stanley Cup. And I think that has hurt his recognition, although he is a Hall of Famer. But he spent... It hurt us, too. Being fans, it hurt us, too. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Yeah, it it really did. It really did. Hey, I was a fan as well. Um, He spent 10 years with the Rangers and then three with the Blues. Do you think, even though he's a Hall of Famer, does he get as much credit as he deserves as a coach? No, probably not. Well, keep in mind, Warren, he went after the Rangers. He's the coach general manager in St. Louis. They won a division title. And in the 80-81 playoffs, the Rangers beat them in a short series. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then when St. Louis had a change of ownership, they were literally almost bankrupt. And Emil had to try to make payroll. I think he said to me it was for about an eight-week period it was very dicey whether he could make the payroll each eight weeks. Wow. But they had a parting of the ways. He went to Hartford. The Whalers were down and out, and they won a division title and got in the playoffs with a meal. Hmm. So I think that that's the Hall of Fame pedigree right there. Sure, sure. Besides his glove, what's his legacy? Pardon? You know, the glove, he brought, he, he, he redesigned or introduced the 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 glove for the goalie. So that is, you know, that's part of his legacy. But what else is his legacy? Oh, well, you know, uh, he he uh he, you know started the uh, Metropolitan Hockey League and and uh and had had it not been for Emil Francis coming in and basically saving the Rangers when he came along, there would be no Islanders, there would be no uh, New Jersey Devils. He he has a big part in what New York hockey uh, became uh, in the last 20 or 30 years, uh, 30, 40 years, uh, because uh, uh, he uh, was brought in when the Rangers were really at, uh, at a down 
ground spiral. They were put, they, they didn't sell out. They were having selling tickets and, uh, you know, who knows what, what could have happened. So he really saved that franchise by rebuilding it, making them playoff contenders every year. Uh, he, he really has to have credit for that. And I'm uh, so upset that, that the Rangers never, uh, gave him a, a night. I had, I had wrote an article, uh, about it and I sent it to the Rangers and uh, of course he didn't do anything but uh, he he should be honored in some way now maybe it's too late but you know he should he should be honored in some way for all he did for New York hockey interesting there's no there's no doubt his name should be raised to the rafters along with Brad Park I think George would agree yes. with that yes interesting. one that's, thing about Amos you COVID and you can have fans in the building yeah one thing about Amo, when he was with the Rangers, his his uh, nemesis was a guy named Alan Cohen, uh, Alan Bottomline Cohen, who was the president of the Garden, and they didn't get along, and because Cohen wanted the Rangers to win, and Amo was doing the best he could, so basically, Alan Cohen was the guy that hadn't fired, and uh, uh, when Amo was in Hartford, Alan Cohen got a group of uh, investors, uh, and he bought the uh, Boston Celtics. And a uh, a sports writer called Amel in Hartford and asked him what he thought about Alan Cohen. And Amel said, "If I saw that guy uh, in the middle of the road, you know, and I was in my car, I'd run him over." <laughs> he just he just hated the guy so much because all the all the work and all the all the the you know, sixteen hour days that Amel put into the Rangers, he he just threw it all away. Wow. Well, for his career, I mean, he had a heck of a winning percentage. I mean, he won 342 games with the Rangers and lost 209 overall. And and again, you know, he helped to rebuild what was a cellar-dweller team. Um, And it's just amazing. You know, you take a look. The only time that he was under 500 with the Rangers was his first year. I'm looking at his coaching record here. His first year, he's 13 and 31. And then after that, 30 and 28, 39 and 23, 19 and 8. I'm not sure I understand why in 68, 69 that um, um, he was only behind the bench for 33 games. Maybe you guys well, can. I'll tell you why, Warren, because. That season, he had to replace Bernie Jeffrey on with himself. The Boomer had um, he was on the verge of a perforated ulcer. He had ulcers. Ah, okay. He collapsed. He collapsed on the West Coast in Oakland in January, and Emil took over. Okay, so that and is- of course I know George can speak to the fact that Emil replaced head coaches three times with himself, starting with Red Sullivan, because the Rangers always responded to it. The cat, sure, right. Sure. Yeah, I mean, 38 wins, 49 wins, 48 wins, 47 wins. You know, it was just it was just constant. And uh, overall, I mean, the guy ended his career with a uh, record of over, you know, that 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 saw him win more than 100 games and he lost. So he was there was something about him. And that goes back to this game, this nine goal game. What was his philosophy for that game? score as many goals as possible. How unique was that? And, 
you know, you sort of talked about this earlier, Reg. How did he motivate, or maybe it was you, George, how did he motivate the team to perform as well offensively as they did? I mean, nine goals, and to get through their head, don't worry about defense. Yeah, that was his essential message in the locker room was that they had to go out and score as many goals as they could. All he wanted, which didn't happen, he won, all he wanted was to make sure the one defenseman stayed back at all times, which, as George knows, didn't happen. <laughs> the Ranger defenseman trailed the playoff ice the entire game. It had to be a fun game for the Rangers to play, that's for sure. When you're pouring in that many goals and, and you know, Emil probably said to Arnie Brown and, and the rest of the defense, Guys, forget about it. Just go out and score. Right. And I'm, I mean, it's, I mentioned it in the book, but I think this really is something that has always stayed with me. Because none of us, if you think about it intellectually, you'll never see it again. When the Rangers led 9-3 to three with 3.38 to go, Emil's pulled Ed Jockerman three separate times because all he cared about was scoring. <laughs> and... When's the last time you've seen a team winning in the National Hockey League that pulled their own goaltender? Yeah, you'd be accused of pouring it on, but back then, you had to. Had to. You had to. And as I mentioned before, entering that day, the Rangers had a 12-goal lead ahead of Montreal in terms they had allowed 12 fewer goals. So it wasn't a question of how many they could give up. Right. So really... The Red Wings scored two empty net goals. Gordy Howe scored one, and Nick Libet scored the other to make it nine to five. But that was really irrelevant. Yeah, it was about offense. It was all about offense. The NHL didn't think That's about right. defense basically at that time. It was about it was about offense. You know, interestingly enough, they make the playoffs. Montreal, you know, doesn't. Uh, I don't think Montreal beat Chicago that night. No, uh, Montreal didn't make it. Yeah, yeah, they lost no, that they, game. They, well, you know, the opposite thing happened, of course. Montreal was trailing 5-2 to two with 10 minutes to go, and they pulled Roby Vashon because now all they needed to do was score three more goals. They needed to score five. They knew, they knew they were going to lose. And Chicago scored five empty net goals and won 10-2. Unbelievable. What a crazy, what a crazy event. I mean, it's just... You know, it's probably the only time that ever happened in the NHL where, you know, there was such a a a premium on goals for one one night and it really affect, you know, it, it, it's it's a crazy thing. You know, the Rangers didn't fare well in the playoffs. They lost in six games to the Bruins. And you go back and you look at that season as a whole. What a great last game where they score those nine goals. I mean, what a high. But after getting in and after getting off to such a great start to the season, how much of a disappointment was it to lose to Boston? Yeah, well, um, uh, well Warren, I have to tell you that in all fairness to Emil, with all the injuries the Rangers had starting on February 13th, they were almost literally playing playoff hockey from mid-February to April 5th. Sure. Right. And I just think there wasn't much left to give. And, of course, the Bruins finished first overall that season in the East Division. So with Bobby Orr, Phil Esposito, and company, I don't think that was the easiest assignment yeah, in no. the first round. Not at no. all. Not at all. 
Well, I want to thank both of you guys for stopping by and talking to me about this game and mostly about uh, just touching base about some of the players who appeared in that game who a lot of us don't remember, you know, particularly a guy like Arnie Brown, whom I'm quite sure that if you asked, very few Ranger fans might recall that the 15 goals that Arnie Brown scored that season actually set a Rangers record for most goals in one year. So again, I'd like to thank both of you. Reg, tell us a little more about the book, Nine Goals, um, how much fun it was to write it, uh, and and where fans can get a copy of it. Thank you for that, Warren. Well, you can get a copy via Amazon.com, but I would, I would just say that having spent 46 years in sports journalism, I was always waiting for a famous writer such as David Halberstam or Frank DeFord of Sports Illustrated or John Updike to write about that game. And so 20 years went by, this is 1990, and I'm just wondering who's going to do it and who's going to do it. <laughs> and then another 15 years went by, and I realized, well, I guess there's no interest. And I tried to get a publisher for it. I was told, well... You know, that's kind of a narrow subject. It's only Ranger fans will care about it. And so I published it on my own. But as I found out, a lot of people not only knew about that game, but wanted to read about it. That's awesome. And I got some amazing material from the players. That's awesome. And George, what are you working on? Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, as George knows, when you get great material, that really makes everything fun and come to life. Sure. It right, it almost writes itself at that point. George, what are you working on these days? All right. Well, I'm uh, actually working on a baseball book with a friend of mine. Uh, he's got a podcast, and we're, we're transcribing some of his podcasts into a book. Uh, but I'm also working on a, a book about the Rangers during the uh, – uh, war years, World War II, when they were just a terrible team. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I've been working on that for a while. And my, my hope is to get it out by, I think, 2026 when the Rangers have their 100th anniversary. That's awesome. That would be great. That's awesome. Right. Um, as, as, as far as Walt Couture, can I just say one more thing? Absolutely. Sure. When, when Walt was a rookie, when the Rangers first saw him at training camp, uh, Somebody told uh, Bill Jennings what Walt did uh, over the summer to earn money. And he used to bring uh, TNT uh, into the gold mines uh, up in Canada. And Bill Jennings said, well, shouldn't we get the lad a safer job? And uh, so they didn't want him to do that. <laughs> that's that's, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, you don't, you and, don't uh, want him doing that. And, you know, since we're talking about the 69-70 season, we should mention uh, that uh, Jerry Eskenazi wrote a book called A Year on Ice about that season. I, I, I know it's one of my favorite books and, and probably one of Rage's too. And uh, um, they're actually going to make a, a, a movie out of it sometime this year. Oh, wow. Year. Wow, so, that's um, really interesting. interesting. That's but really interesting. That, yeah, that's one of my three favorite hockey books of all time. Yeah, yeah. Actually, that was kind of the inspiration of my book, uh, We Did Everything Will Win. Uh, but uh, it, was, it was, you know, um, it uh, came out in 1971, and I 
I've read it about eight or ten times since then. I, it just, it just, uh, you know, at the time it was the first book of its kind uh, as far as hockey is concerned. Uh, uh, there was a uh, instant replay by Jerry Karema. That that was a uh, you know day by day book uh, about the Green Bay Packers. But this was the first hockey book of its kind, and uh, I just loved it. It was a great book. Jerry, Jerry is a great reporter. Yes. Well, again, thank you so much for joining me on Sports Forgotten Heroes. I really appreciate both of you taking some time to talk with us and and to let us uh, uh, reminisce about uh, what was a great and then possibly a disappointing season and some of the stars whom time has forgotten. Always fun to talk hockey. George, thank you so much. Reg, it was a pleasure. Hello. And, uh, all ranges, just call me and Reg. We'll call you anytime, George. You know, I will. Gentlemen, thank you so much. Emil Francis was one of the greats, and like George said, it's a shame we could not have had the cat on the podcast because of his health. Nonetheless, just talking a little about Francis what he meant to the Rangers, and the contributions he made to the game of hockey was fun. As was talking about this very special game and recalling the careers of Arnie Brown, Dave Ballon, Orland Kurtenbach, and Walt Kachuk. I know this format was a little out of the norm for the way I do podcasts, but I sure hope you enjoyed today's show. Next time, we're going to step away from the four major sports and turn our attention to the world of tennis to talk about one of the greatest tennis players of all time, a guy whose career, I think, is often overlooked. I mean, when you talk about the greats of American tennis, the names that first come to mind, at least in recent times, are guys like Connors, McEnroe, Agassi, even Courier. But, at least in my mind, so few talk about the career of Pete Sampras, and he just might be the greatest American tennis player of all time. And I'll be talking about Pete with author Steve Flink, who just released a new book called Pete Sampras, Greatness Revisited. That's next time. For now, I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I'll see you next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Each week, the official Football Learning Academy podcast will take you deep into the history of pro football through interviews with players, coaches, or administrators in the NFL, as well as interviews with Pro Football Hall of Fame selectors, authors, and historians You'll learn how the game evolved and important moments that shaped the sport into what it is today. And don't miss the Pro Football History Nugget of the Week. Listen to the official Football Learning Academy podcast on the Sports History Network. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? 
Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast. <laughs>